Rock-a-bye, baby, on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall. And down will come baby, cradle and all. That familiar rhyme is the springboard for Westminster Town Hall Forum speaker Sylvia Ann Hewlett's recent work, When the Bow Breaks, The Cost of Neglecting Our Children. She comes to us today to animate with her own person, her own experience, her own very real passion, the same theme, that in America today, rich and poor, white and black, are victims, children of the rich and the poor, white and black, are victims of a stunning level of public and private neglect, of physical and emotional abuse. Ms. Hewlett, author of another attention-getting volume, A Lesser Life, The Myth of Women's Liberation in America, grew up in a working-class family in the coal-mining region of South Wales. By dint of parental encouragement and a lot of hard work, she entered England's Cambridge University, where she distinguished herself academically. She was the first student from her high school to attend Cambridge. Her field is economics, and she worked that discipline in Africa and Brazil in the early 1970s. In 1974, she became an assistant professor of economics at Barnard College in New York City. She was proceeding along a tenured track when she had her first child, leading to complications in her academic life that she may wish to refer to here today and leading in turn to a whole new passion, the finding of a right way for the academic and corporate worlds as well as government to relate to women who wish and need to work and who also wish to have a family, focusing on the needs of the children involved. Dr. Hewlett, I, Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis and forum moderator, invite you in the name of all gathered in this sanctuary this noon and all listening attentively over public radio, tell us more about the plight of our children and show us something of what we can do to turn things around. We welcome you to this podium today. Thank you for that warm welcome. This forum has a splendid reputation, and I feel privileged to be with you today. Let me start my story by talking a little bit about how I arrived at these issues. As was described just now, I grew up in the Welsh mining valleys, one of six daughters. In a relatively impoverished family, we didn't have a refrigerator or a telephone in my uh, home when I grew up, but one that was really rich in parental love and attention. And when I arrived in the States in the late 60s as a student at Harvard, 
I really felt immensely fortunate that I certainly had come to this nation at the right pla place at the right time. You know, the barriers to professional fulfillment uh, for women were really falling all around me. And I was sure that as long as I worked hard, I could have it all. And in my eyes, having it all meant having a family as well as having a profession. But in 1977, when I had my first child, this world really did become one that was not working for me anymore. You see, in some ways, I thought I'd done a lot of planning. I had delayed childbearing. I'd armed myself to the teeth with advanced degrees. I had this great job at Barnard College, and I had an extremely supportive husband. And yet, when I found out that I just had 10 days off to have my baby, I realized that my workplace was not particularly family-friendly. In fact, you were supposed to just shove the whole business under the rug and not talk about it in, you know, polite company. And obviously, to begin with, I just blame myself, as I was out there doing poor things badly, being, I think, a very inadequate mother, a, a very uh, irritated, I think, an irritable family member. Uh, a very third-rate professional and uh, leaking milk all over the place, also flunking breastfeeding on the job. I thought that it was all my fault. I surely should get along with three hours sleep a night. And then I, too, could be one of those Teflon-coated supermoms that the media seemed to be full of. But then, a couple of years later, when I lost twins in the seventh month of pregnancy and found I was expected to be back at work three days later, and then a little way down the road when I had a very premature child and was dealing with two-hour feeding schedules on the job, I realized that I was living in a city and in a society which was profoundly hostile to children. I felt that I was being taught that this parenting enterprise was some kind of expensive private hobby that you were meant to do on your own time. And I guess I also became quite angry because I knew that if I, a privileged woman with all kinds of job skills, was really failing to make it, there surely were millions of American parents who were hanging on by their fingernails, not coping in this world that was so very unsupportive of their endeavors. And so I left econometrics. I decided not to become a bean counter. Instead, I entered the much more murky world of social policy, which is where I've bent my energies for the last 10, 15 years. Let me move into the topic at hand today by reading a poem that was dictated to me in the summer of 1988 when I was doing some volunteer work in one of the, those horrible homeless shelters in New York City. It was written by a 10-year-old homeless boy called Brian. When our baby die, we start to sit by the window. We just sit and sit all wrapped up, quiet in old shirts, and watch the pigeons. That pigeon, she flies so fast, moves so fast. She moved nice, a real pretty flyer. She opened her mouth and take in the wind. We just spread out crumbs, me and my brother. And we wait, sit and wait, there under the windowsill. She don't even see us until we slam down the window and she break 
She look with one eye. She don't die right away. We dip her in over and over in the water pot we bars on the hot plate. We want to see how it be to die slow like our baby die. It turned out that Brian's baby sister Tamara had been found dead in their shelter some six weeks previously. At the time of her death, Tamara was 10 months old and weighed seven pounds. She died of homelessness, neglect, and an ear infection. Well, when I looked at Brian, this homeless child, already violently on the streets, torturing pigeons in his spare time, I wondered what he would turn into. And the comment of the social worker who was looking after this family was something that will always stick in my mind. She said, you know, we are breeding expensive killers in these homeless shelters, and no one seems to care. Her words prompted me to go crunch the numbers in New York City. And it turns out that the cost of the taxpayer of one life like Brian's, the cost of a lifetime spent in and out of the welfare system, in and out of the penal system, costs all of us about $300,000. That is the price tag attached to a child not becoming a viable citizen. And so I suppose one, one of the kind of bottom lines of this poem is that all of this agony, this misery, does not even come cheaply. Well, if you look out uh, uh, over the face of America in 1992, look to see how children are doing, you will find that there is a story out there that we all should be ashamed of. Because it's not just the kids in the inner cities, the kids in the ghettos, the kids that are somehow over there that don't belong to us. It's all of our kids are in really deep trouble at the beginning of this decade. Let's round up a few of the figures. A fifth of our children are now growing up below the poverty line. 350,000 children are homeless. But if you look at the middle class youngsters, they're also not doing very well. Teenage suicide rates have tripled over the last decade, and a baby born in the shadow of the White House now has a less good chance of living the first year of life than a baby born in Trinidad or Costa Rica. For the middle-class college-bound youngster, SAT scores have fallen by 73 points over the last 15 years, and the number of middle-class kids in inpatient psychiatric care went from 16,000 to 270,000 this last decade. In my book, I tell the story of Becky, a 14-year-old that I interviewed in Pacific Palisades, California, one of the more affluent communities in America. Well, Becky, at 14, was strung out in Valium, and she said she felt like a throwaway child. And Becky's problem was that she hadn't seen her dad in seven years. He'd moved out after a divorce. She hadn't seen him since. And her mother was trying to make it in a new marketing career, working a 60-hour week, and Becky rarely saw her. She felt rejected 
by both of her parents, and right now she's almost flunking out of school, facing a very uncertain future. And I guess what we have here is a whole constellation of problems that really ignore race lines, ignore whether the child is in the country or in the city, really go right across this society. One of my main points that I try and really rub home in this book is just how this neglect of children is impacting on all of us. First of all, there are enormous economic consequences. David Kearns right now, who's under Secretary of Education and used to be chairman of Xerox, estimates that American business spends $25 billion a year on remedial education right now. Motorola is a good example. A couple of years ago, Motorola decided to site their new cellular phone factory just outside of Chicago. After they built the plant, they did a survey of their workforce, and to their horror, they discovered that only 40% of their workers could pass an eighth grade test in math and writing skills. So Motorola right now is having to spend $16 million a year in just bringing those workers up to some basic level. A Motorola is also seriously considering citing its next plant in Malaysia. And I think that is the story in business. Increasingly, the American young worker does not cut the mustard in terms of what is needed in modern economies. This last winter, I did a little work for UNICEF. And it turns out that the human resources, the human capital in America, is much worse than in any of the other rich nations. For instance, the fact that we have 27% of all teenagers dropping out of school really puts us almost in a category of our own. In Japan, just 6% of children fail to make it to that graduating level uh, at age 18. And in Germany, the figure is 10%. And I think what we see when we look at the 21st century are economies which increasingly need fairly sophisticated level of both literacy and mathematical skills. And we are creating a society where almost one third of all young people are unemployable because of our failure to uh, look after them, our failure to educate them, our failure to make them potentially viable. Well, let's kind of back up for a moment and see what has gone wrong. Why are American children in such bad shape? And I think that in a way the story is a simple one because I think once we categorize the reasons, all of us will see how true they are. For starters, we spend very little money on our children as a nation. If you take the 1980s, you will find that there was a drop of 52% in the amount of federal dollars going to families with children. You know, the real story on Ronald Reagan is that he thought life began at conception and ended at birth. <laughs> because he was very concerned. <laughs> he, 
He was extremely concerned about the unborn child. But when it came to the needy two-year-old or 12-year-old, he nearly always tuned out. We're the only rich nation where 30% of all toddlers, for instance, don't get vaccinated against measles anymore because we've cut those budgets. We have 30 million kids out there with no health insurance. So this was a decade where we really slashed and cut budgets for families with children. A decade where we tripled the amount of money we spent on defense and doubled the amount of money we spend on the elderly because they do have a very valuable and very powerful uh, political voice. So it's not true that in this $4 trillion economy somehow we don't have any money for children. It's just that we choose to spend it elsewhere. Right now, we spend more on military pensions than we do on the entire national AFDC program. And I think that gives you a sense of where our priorities have been at. But you know, it's not just money. Children also need time. They need it desperately. The amount of contact time between parents and their children has fallen some 40 percentage points over the last 15 years. Parents are tremendously overburdened. Let's think of how our time has been squeezed. Well, for starters, because the male wage has dropped 19%, increasingly women are at work to buy the groceries, to pay the rent, for reasons of real economic survival. Secondly, since we've undergone a divorce revolution that has not been terribly concerned with picking up the pieces for children, in the wake of divorce right now, 40% of dads never see their children again. Becky's case is not unusual. And the final factor in this parental squeeze in terms of time is what's happened to the work week. Did you know that adults in this economy, both men and women, are now at work six hours more per week than they were in 1980? Because we've not invested in our people, we have very low productivity growth rates. Like hamsters on a wheel, we are running faster and faster and staying in the same place. If you go to Germany or Italy, you will find that work week shrank during the 80s. Parents have more time at home, more time with their kids. Why? Because more money is going into training and into education, and productivity has gone up in those nations. So what I suggest that instead of fanning the flames of parental guilt, we give mothers and fathers the ability to spend more time with their kids, to do a better job on the home front, and to create more viable families. A few months ago, I was on the Larry King talk show in the middle of the night. You know that program that seems to go on forever, and you get all kinds of weird people calling in. Well, because it is accessible to shift workers, I got quite a few parents calling in the night I was on. And one person will stay in my mind forever. A young father from Phoenix, Arizona, who called in with agony in his voice to tell us what had happened to his three-week-old baby daughter. She was in daycare. He called it a kennel. It was a neighborhood woman who had 27 toddlers 
and babies in her home. It was unlicensed. He had counted six fire hazards. But you know, he and his wife together only earned $23,000 a year. They couldn't afford to imperil either job, and there is no parenting leave in Arizona. They had to buy daycare on the private market, and this is what they could afford. Well, as this young man told us of what was going on in his home, the wretched start in life that his daughter was getting, and the incredible stress and strain in his marriage as they watched, as they watched their baby cope with these circumstances. And I got a new inkling of what it meant not to have parenting leave in this society. Our caring president shot it down last year. If you remember, it was vetoed in Washington for the third time. Did you know that there are 113 nations out there now that have maternity and parenting leave bills which give their citizens five months at full pay so that you cannot find a three-month-old in daycare in France? That baby is bound to be with a parent. And I think that parenting leave is a very good example of how little priority we give to children and to the parenting enterprise, which is the third factor I want to talk about, because quite frankly, if we hang on to this notion that children are just some private consumption item, the moral equivalent of a second car or having a manicure or something, we really will continue to neglect them this way. And I suppose what I am pushing for is a real sense of collective responsibility here for not just our own children, but for other people's children too. Because quite frankly, our children are 100% of our future. And if we continue to undermine them, diminish them, and undervalue them the way we are, we will become, and we'll, we will deserve to become, a second-rate nation. In 1953, Charles de Gaulle, president of France, said, you know, having a child for a woman was a little like doing military service for a man. Both were essential for la gloire, for the greatness of France, for the wealth and prosperity and power of the nation. And I do think that the kind of grudging, mean-spirited attitudes that we've had, particularly towards other people's children, is right now undermining the prospects of this nation dramatically. Let me move now into the good news because I think that uh, it is important not just to sit around and complain, but actually construct a doable agenda because there are, you know, urgent tasks to be done out there. The hope, I think, in all of this extraordinary constellation of problems is really that uh, the economic leverage for finally moving is there. Let me tell a story. A couple of winters back, the Teamsters invited me down to Dallas to be the keynote speaker at their first ever Women in the Workforce conference. A rather unexpected invitation, I thought. <laughs> and when I stood there that evening in the 
Hilton Ballroom in Dallas, Texas, and looked out at the assembled and 100% male Teamster leadership, I realized that in some ways, America had changed. Because Hugh was one of the most conservative, most macho, and most indicted audiences in America. <laughs> asking me my advice on how they could help women and children. And you see, what was going on was not that these Teamsters had had a sudden change of consciousness. What had happened was that 300,000 flight attendants had just voted to join the Teamsters. And they knew that unless they got up to speed real quick on things like flex time and parenting leave, they would be history, as they put it. You see, the Teamsters had a pretty good research staff. They'd crunched the numbers, looked at the next decade, and they knew what was going on out there. If you take the workforce, 1990 to the year 2000, you will find that only 10% of incoming workers are white males. You know, they're becoming an endangered species in some way, I suppose. Everyone else is either female or a member of a minority group. Groups which are very overburdened or very underinvested in. And the Teamsters knew that they could not rely on their old style of members if they wanted to maintain their status as a large group. They had to attract and retain these new workers, which were largely women and minorities. Women right now are about 67% of all new entrants, and they will hang on to that number through this decade. We are the main bulk of the available new labor pool. And as such, I think we do have new power. And let's spell this out in terms of what's happening in corporate America. American Express invited me in the winter before last to help them design a set of support policies for women and children in their firm. And what was happening in American Express was, again, very much tied up with their bottom line. As Jim Robinson put it, the chairman of an American Express, he really wasn't big on these warm, fuzzy issues. <laughs> so he had to be convinced that, in fact, they weren't warm or fuzzy at all. They were really hard-edged and really affected profits, because that was the language he understood. Well, it turned out that in American Express, as they moved to a company which was increasingly dominated by women workers, one really bad thing was happening. Productivity was great with these women, but they were losing too many of them. The attrition rate had crept up to 17% per year, meaning that they had this extraordinarily rapid rate of labor turnover with these women. And obviously, this was not cheap for the firm. Because at American Express, which do not actually pay their workers that much, it now costs $23,000 to replace each woman they lose. That's the cost of recruiting, the cost of getting the new employee up to speed in terms of productivity. So they knew that if they could somehow bring that attrition rate down, hang on to more of these women workers, they would do themselves a big favor. So they ran some surveys, and guess what? They figured out that they were losing all of these women because they didn't have any policies that produced things like, you know, maternity leave or flex time arrangements 
or work-at-home arrangements, or any of the other things that make it so difficult for new parents to hang on to that job. Now, two years later, American Express does have a very elaborate package, which really is not just good for the workers and their children, but it's good for the company. The attrition rates down to the one-digit level, and they are finding that it's paid off for the firm. Interestingly enough, it wasn't so much childcare or um, formal subsidies that these workers wanted. In these surveys, what the employees said time and time again is that what they wanted the company to give them was the gift of time. In other words, they would kill for a three-day week the ability to job share, the ability to go for fifth time and hang on to their benefits etc. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, parents know where it's at. They know that their scarcest resource is time, and they will produce the most amazing loyalty to companies that can give them that. In my book, I spend about a third of my time laying out a program of action for the 90s because it is possible to design cost-effective programs that underpin family life, that invest in kids, and create a more viable uh, framework for families doing what they do well, which is bringing up their own children. Uh, I won't go into all of the detail right now. We can certainly uh, open up some of this area in the discussion time. Let me just pull out a couple which I think are illustrative of, of what I would like to happen here. When it comes to investing in kids, we know how to do it. You put the money in early, and you prevent problems developing later on. You know, one of the stories of the 80s which I've never understood is how we got to underfund prenatal care to the extent we did. By the end of the 80s, 27% of all women in America were getting inadequate prenatal care. Now, if you look at it, you don't even have to have a very long-run time perspective to realize that you're really shooting yourself in the foot by not doing this. Prenatal care costs about $600. If a woman has prenatal care, she's much less likely to have a low birth weight premature baby. Those low birth weight premature babies, as we all know, are an extraordinarily expensive item. They average about $80,000 in terms of their initial medical care. So if you give women, right across the board, this kind of medical service, you can be guaranteed that just nine months down the road, you will have smaller hospital bills for neonatal care. And the other thing that's true, of course, is that you guarantee that many more babies are born on time and whole, and don't have to spend a lifetime dealing with the consequences of prematurity. Now, in France, they figured this out a long time ago, and what they do is that they actually have a positive incentive scheme in place, particularly in the inner cities, particularly in non-French-speaking populations. For instance, their guest workers are mostly non-French-speaking. They actually give women $100 a month if they turn up to their prenatal appointments because they know 
that for many of these poor women, if they have to travel distances, if they have to get daycare, it actually is an expense to attend these clinics. And yet, from the society's point of view, it's a whole lot cheaper to make sure that women really avail themselves of these services than that society deals with the consequences of prematurity and the horrors that go along with that. So I think that's a kind of an example of the very obvious kind of investments we have to make in the unborn child, the baby, the toddler, because, you know, the research that we've done, particularly in America, shows that about 50% of adult achievement is already determined by age five. And quite frankly, you can pour all kinds of educational dollars down the drain if kids are not on track by that point. And I suppose I find it an appalling piece of hypocrisy when President Bush tells us that by the year 2000, he wants every five-year-old ready and able to go to school. This is a president who has just decided not to fully fund vaccination programs in our cities, a president that vetoed a family leave bill which would have given my friend in Phoenix the ability not to put his three-week-old in a kennel. That kind of rhetoric, I think, is mocking the problem unless it goes along with some resources and some decent set of policies. The other thing I guess I want to uh, emphasize is that there are all kinds of ways of freeing up time for working parents that can be encouraged by the government. I said right now that you know parenting leave is essential. For companies with fewer than 50 employees, it can be a burden to even uh, you know, cover the kinds of benefits that you would need to give unpaid leave to workers for a few months. And what I suggest in my book is that we use the Social Security Trust Fund to help finance those benefits in small firms. You know, every other country does it. There's usually a creative way of financing parenting leave so it doesn't fall on small business, it doesn't fall on the private economy, but is shared between government, the private sector, and the individual families. So there are ways of doing it which will, I think, prevent undue burdens. And I guess the other just substantive thing I want to emphasize is that this business of underpinning children is enormously important to us adults in ways that I would like to push on a little bit. And again, let me back up and tell a story. Last summer, I went with my husband to his 25th college reunion. We didn't really mean to stick along uh, around too long. We'd just gone back to see some old friends. But when we arrived in New Haven, that very hot June day, I discovered they were doing a questionnaire, trying to find out what the Yale class of 1966 were doing 25 years later, what their earning power was, and what the earning power of the wives were. Now, it turns out that the Yale class, all male, uh, of 66, were doing rather well in midlife. The average earning power of this group of well-heeled males was about $180,000 a year. You obviously didn't turn up at your Yale reunion unless you were doing rather well out there. <laughs> 
The earning power of the women was a very different story. The average there was just $11,000 a year. Now, I looked at that figure, and I didn't believe it. You know, even with my rather jaundiced view as to what women really earning in this economy, I thought that they had messed it up. They'd somehow included women who worked at home as well as those out there in the labor force. So I went to look at the questionnaires, and I interviewed some of the women. And it did turn out it was a relatively accurate figure. They'd include some part-time workers, but they were all out there struggling to earn a living. And, you know, when I went into it and really looked at the lives of these women, I quickly figured out what had happened. You see, one is talking about, for starters, wife number one and wife number two. Because the Yale class in 1966, along with everyone else in America, had divorced rather frequently, and in fact, 70% of them were into a second marriage. So one was dealing with women in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s. But the thing that they held in common, these wives number one and wives number two, was that they had taken nine years out of the labor force to have their 3.1 children, to move around the country giving dinner parties to enable their husbands to be promoted and all of that. And when they tried to get back on the train in their 30s or early 40s, they found a very hostile place. And clearly, it was extremely hard for them to plunge back in and attain anything like uh, professional levels of earning power. So I guess I went to look at the figures again. And I figured out that in America, for every year you spend out of full-time work as a woman, you decrease your earning power at a very, very rapid rate. For instance, if you stay out two years, you decrease your earning power by 18% permanently. Now, again, if you go to other countries, this kind of thing is not true. You do not pay such a big price for your children because the services, the, the supports are really there, very much embedded in the society. And really, when you look at a 23-year-old in America today, you can tell a very upbeat story. This woman, whether she's a truck driver or a lawyer, is now doing very well. She's earning about 90% of the male wage. But you take her 15 years later with two children working full time, and whether she's a liar or a truck driver, she's now earning just 46% of the male wage. She's fallen down a very slippery slope of downward mobility. She has paid a very heavy penalty for her children. In many cases, what happens is that when you take your six weeks disability, you know, to have your child, you end up being redefined as a new hire when you go back to work. You lose your seniority. You lose your right to vest in the pension plan. Those kinds of complaints are extremely common in all of the EEOC uh, commissions right through the country. And the other thing that happens is that because daycare is so expensive and so difficult to get, you might end up giving up your job and getting a much less good job with short hours close to home because it's the only way of coping with the daycare dilemma. Now, if you move to France, it's very different. That 23-year-old is not doing as well as an American young woman because they don't have the kinds of opportunities that we now have here. A French woman at age 23 is earning about 80% of the male wage. But if you take that woman 15 years later, 
with two children working full-time, you will find she's still earning 80% of the male wage. Because France spends 6% of GMP on children pre-6 and provides a kind of gold-plated environment in which to bring up children. And France doesn't define this as something they do for women necessarily. They just see it as the best investment they can make in their families and in their young people. Let me just close with uh, pushing you in terms of thinking through, uh, at some profound level, what it means, this business of neglecting children. I talk some of the economic consequences, how we are creating such an extremely heavy burden for our corporations, for our economy, as we underinvest in children. But let's talk about the societal, and yes, the moral dimensions too. One of the unsaid realities about the LA riots is that two-thirds of the rioters were under 18. Marion Wright Edelman, the president of the Children's Defense Fund, said, you know, we either invest in our children or they're going to shoot at us. And I think in a very basic way, we have to understand that these alienated, angry, helpless, hopeless children will explode in our faces, in communities right across this country, if we fail to give them hope. In LA this last decade, the story has been appalling. There was a halving of the amount of money spent on childcare. The educational budgets were cut dramatically, particularly things like sports and extracurricular activities. 50 schools in LA don't have any libraries anymore because they were cut out of the budget. And yet this is a decade where LA tripled the amount of money it spent on the police and on prisons. And I suggest that merely repressing our children is not only uh, a singularly uncompassionate act, but it does boomerang. All it does is enable the problems to fester and get worse. We will not succeed if we just respond to fear and we do not respond to hope. And I also think that even if we recognize that we are unraveling the fabric of our society by pushing out of the mainstream so many young people, that still is, in a sense, talking about enlightened self-interest. It's talking about our own stake in looking after these kids. But there is an even more, I think, profoundly moral message here, which is that in the 1980s, we built an extraordinary bonfire of the vanities. We became almost allergic on spending on the future, 
or in spending on black and brown children. And I do feel it as that decade ground to a halt. We, I think, did realize that the self is a very lonely site for finding meaning. And in the end, reaching out and helping other people's children might really be the closest any of us get to reaching beyond earthly limits and touching the face of God. Dr. Hewlett, you have said with force today that America's children are the most seriously disadvantaged group in our population. You've shown us some options, you've shown us the consequences of not exercising them, and you've called us to respond not out of fear but out of hope, and we thank you for that call. Those of you who must leave are invited to do so. Uh, by the same token, please use this time to send any questions to the aisles. They'll be picked up. We'll respond to as many as we can and give the rest to our speaker that she might know uh, where you're coming from today. Uh, for our radio audience, be reminded that the speaker here at today's Westminster Town Hall Forum has been, is Sylvia Ann Hewlett, author of the uh, highly recognized and welcomed book, When the Bow Breaks, The Cost of Neglecting Our Children. Our co-sponsor today is the McKnight Foundation. Those of you wishing to phone in a question, please call Westminster at 332-3421. Dr. Hewlett, would you return to the platform, please? Uh, you spoke of uh, the Yale graduation and reunion. Uh, you've spoken of how our children are not equipped for the real world educationally. What's your response to the uh, resignation of uh, Benno Schmidt as president of Yale University and his dedication to the Edison Project with the hope of building a thousand private schools across America over the next 20 years. What's going on there? Well, I guess Yale has had a lot of physically financial problems and I do feel that this new venture might find a kind of more constructive outlet for physically Mr. Schmidt's uh, energies. But you know, in a way, the problems in and around, the problems in and around Yale are of rather limited importance to the grand sweep of what's happening out there in America. I do feel that there is room for private energies, but we have to hang on to the central notion that we desperately need the leadership of our political elected representatives and I think the deep pockets of the public purse. The fact that there are 18 million young people reaching the age of 18 without having graduated high school, the fact that there are 400,000 crack babies out there right now are really desperately in need of all kinds of special educational opportunities. I feel that the scope and the dimensions of 
the problems surrounding American children cannot be addressed by just the uh, private sector energies that you know surely should be there and can contribute but can't be the central endeavor. And let me make an analogy here. We thought in the 60s, and also I suppose in the 50s to some extent too, that it was kind of inevitable that old people should always be the kind of uh, poor cousins of a society, those who were least well off, least well cared for. Well, what has happened over the last 20 years is that there's been a tremendous mobilization on behalf of old people. And the US now can be justly proud of a record with elderly people, which is pretty much unrivaled in the world. If you count in all the transfers, only about 3% of older people are now below the poverty line, and many of them are newly able to live out the remainder of their lives with a great deal of dignity. In other words, the federal government is capable of solving problems. I mean, one of the things that happened in the 80s that somehow we were convinced that government was intrinsically bad, that government you know, could never work. And obviously, if you apply the right kind of energy, the right kind of resources, you can turn problems around. And let me just expand on that a tiny bit. Back in the 60s, parents and elderly people voted in about the same proportion. At any given election, between 50 and 60% of them would turn out to vote. You take those two groups now and you find that over 70% of the elderly are voting because they realize they have a powerful voice. Only 27% of parents even bother to vote these days. They feel so excluded, so disenfranchised, so powerless. And I think, you know, one of the ways to get the priority of children back on the agenda at the state level as well as at the federal level is precisely to mobilize the parents of America and make them feel that they matter in new ways. Because as I said earlier, this business of cherishing our children is not just a private exercise. It's something that is really at the center of a democratic uh, kind of community. Thank so you. I do not see private ventures as solving this. I'm standing on a telephone book, which is why. <laughs> <laughs> Question from the audience. Could you speak to the idea suggested in the book, Boys Will Be Boys, that the lack of male father figures in families is the cause of much of the delinquency and crime in this country? That's an incredibly important question. I do think that fathers have not been encouraged, appreciated, or put to work in the ways that should have happened in this society. And again, let me dramatize this by a little vignette. Did you know that something like 40% of all companies in this nation now actually give some form of paternity leave, that only 3% of men feel they can take it? I mean, I was doing some interviewing at the Ford Foundation recently, and I discovered that at the Ford Foundation, a very kind of bleeding-heart liberal institution in New York City, they'd had paternity leave for actually 27 years, and no one had ever taken it. <laughs> As one young man told me, full of 
kind of angst and uh, agony. He said, you know, taking paternity leave in New York City is a little like having lace on your jockey shorts. You know, good American men don't do things like that. <laughs> and I do think that we have arrived at a situation where we delegitimized family life so completely for men that one, in a way, has undercut uh, much of what might have happened in an age where, you know, adults are increasingly uh, collaborating and earning a living, and I do feel that we could do much more to bolster and to encourage the taking up of a more equal role on the parenting front. But, you know, the first step is to make these supports universal entitlements that people can be proud of taking, not something that you sneak off and do and pretend you're not doing and, you know, feel good if you take less than what is on the books. When I was doing some work with Corning Glass, they decided what they needed to do was make it compulsory for all the male managers to take some paternity leave. And then the middle managers and the support staff would feel that they could do it too. <laughs> and I do feel, again, that it has to be a central, universal, and honored thing before we can expect to change, you know, the centuries of conditioning which has uh, led to this decrease in, you know, fatherly attentions. The other thing, I suppose, which I do in my book is that I have a whole panoply of things we can do after divorce to make sure that there is more fathering in the wake of divorce. I think we have to de-link the financial arrangements from the parenting function. And we have to actually have sanctions when parents don't see their children. I mean, we seem able to enforce seatbelts, and you know, we do enforce certain things in our society, and I do think that parenting is for life. And as a society, we've been singularly unconcerned with making sure that it happens. So, you know, there are the usual things which I think are happening in this state. You get guidelines for uh, uh, child support payments, you attach, you know, paychecks, you do all of those things, but there is no substitute for the presence of the man in the life of the child. As you are probably aware, the new research is quite devastating in spelling out the behavioral, the cognitive, the emotional deficits in children that rarely see their fathers. And so it's not, again, just a question of money. It's a question of fathering time. And there are ways of encouraging that and grabbing it uh, if, you, if it doesn't come voluntarily. And I do think we have to make those decisions as a society. We have time for just one more question, uh, and it's an important one. You mentioned early in your speech about giving time through your church to visit a welfare hotel. Is the church as institution doing much beyond small-scale voluntarism, and I'm remembering your comment about your church in New York and some of the things you're doing. Could you uh, rather quickly give us a, an overview? I think that churches um, are enormously powerful in communities and can reach out to children in new ways. I was part of a church in Manhattan which mobilized 300 volunteers, two-thirds of whom were male to actually make hands-on connections with underprivileged kids. And we found that the typical volunteer ended up by being a yuppie 
in his 30s, unmarried, who was quite desperate to do a little tutoring or lead a Boy Scout troop or even do some hands-on work with border babies on Saturdays. And again, it was a question of triggering the idea, making it possible in terms of just the bureaucratic realities. But I do think that there is an enormous void in particularly young um, males' lives in terms of that um, mentor from the next generation. And if you think of all the grandfathers as well as all the fathers out there who might just take a few hours out and by dint of you know, an easily accessible church program get involved with other people's children, I think we might help fill the vacuum that we really have in young people. Because you see, I think what is happening right now, we have a whole set of people in our community who are time rich, and those are the elderly, and to some extent, the newly single person who does need that connection with the young. And we've not tapped this because, you know, the mechanisms aren't there, but I do think the energy's there. And even in the, you know, the bonfire of the vanities par excellence environment, which is what Manhattan is, we did find all kinds of bond traders who were presumably baying for money in the bond market on Mondays who were willing to go do some work. Uh, in a very kind of real way at the weekends. And so I, I think the energy's there. I think we can find it. And the church, I think, could be the catalyst that could help this happen. Dr. Hewlett, you have spoken eloquently about the need, the importance of the gift of time, and we thank you for the gift of your time in behalf of our children. Thank you. <laughs>